0: This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you this week for the Jewish Hour. I'll start reading from Jewish Telegraphic Agency. The first article, Tyler Heron, former Team Israel pitcher dies at 35, by Jacob Gorvis. Tyler Heron, a former Major League Baseball prospect who pitched for Team Israel during their Cinderella run, 2017 World Baseball Classic died this week at 35. No cause or exact date of Heron's death have been reported. Several of the minor league teams he played for posted tributes to Heron on social media Thursday. Heron who grew up in Florida was of Puerto Rican descent according to El Nuevo Dia, one of Puerto Rico's largest circulation newspapers. But a YouTube video from Team Israel explains that his aunt also discovered in 2014 that he had a Jewish grandmother, which made him eligible to earn Israeli citizenship and play for the team. Haran appeared in three games during the 2017 World Baseball Classic and called it the best experience I've ever had in baseball. Team Israel finished sixth in the international tournament, despite being ranked outside of the top 40 countries in the world before entering. Team Israel Baseball posted a note on social media Thursday. He is remembered fondly by all his teammates and coaches from Team Israel. Israel Baseball sends its deepest condolences to Heron's family and loved ones. A native of West Palm Beach, Florida, Heron was a standout high school pitcher. During his senior year, the right-hander led the country with a 2-5 earned run average, striking out 81 batters in 57 innings. He was drafted by the St. Louis Cardinals in the first round of the 2005 Major League Baseball draft, and in 27, 2007 was ranked by Baseball America as the organization's 10th best prospect. But he never made it to the major leagues. During a 16-year career, Heron played for several minor league teams in multiple organizations, as well as, as in foreign and independent leagues, including in Puerto Rico. The head of the Puerto Rico Players Association told El Nuevo Dia that an investigation into Heron's death is underway. This year, Heron pitched for the Fargo-Moorhead Redhawks of the Independent American Association League his fourth separate stint with the team. Biden's Tree of Life anniversary statement used a term that worries parts of both the left and the right by Ron Campeas, Washington. As he did the previous two years, Joe Biden issued a sober statement about the Tree of Life synagogue shooting, the deadliest attack on Jews in U.S. history. We must always stand up and speak out against anti-Semitism with clarity and conviction and rally against the forces of hate in all its forms because silence is complicity. He wrote Wednesday, the third anniversary of the shooting by a gunman who killed 11 worshipers. But hidden in the statement was a reference to domestic terrorism, a term that has stirred discomfort on the left and the right. That continues to be the work of my administration, laying out our country's first ever comprehensive strategy to address domestic terrorism, signing legislation aimed at strengthening our efforts to counter unlawful acts of hate, taking executive actions to protect houses of worship, and pressing forward with executive and legislative action to reduce all forms of gun violence, Biden said. Vice President Kamala Harris also referred to Biden's comprehensive strategy to address domestic terrorism in her message. Biden in June launched a a law enforcement strategy that aimed to disrupt and deter domestic terrorism activity and confront long-term contributors to domestic terrorism. It singled out violent white supremacy and violent anti-government ideologies. There is no law against domestic terrorism per se, but laws introduced after the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks allow law enforcement to cite the threats of domestic terrorism as a pretext to launch investigations. Civil Liberties groups expressed alarm at the Biden initiative, saying that the term facilitates the impingement of freedoms. The American Civil Liberties Union responding to Biden's initiative said that the strategy relies too heavily on law enforcement suspicion, investigation and policing of beliefs rather than actual conduct, violence or attempted violence. More recently, Republicans have alleged without evidence that the Biden administration is targeting parents as domestic terrorists because they protest school board's coronavirus prevention measures. They are especially alarmed that Merrick Garland, the Attorney General, has said the department is ready to investigate threats of violent attacks on school boards. Garland's October 4th memo does not use the term domestic terrorism, but an umbrella group, the National School Boards Association, used it in a letter to Biden. The NSBA later apologized for using the term. Conservative media has conflated the memo with the NSBA letter. The same day as the Pittsburgh anniversary, Republican senators attacked Garland for the memo at a hearing, some calling on him to resign. Senator Ted Cruz, notably, in his questioning of Garland, defended the First Amendment right to make a Nazi salute in protest of school COVID policies. Jewish groups have welcomed the initiative domestic violent extremism is the nation's top terrorism threat, and the Biden administration's new strategy is an excellent step forward in addressing it, building on their significant progress to date, Jonathan Greenblatt, the Anti-Defamation League CEO, said at the time of the rollout of the initiative. Biden's Tree of Life statement was packed with Jewish references, noting that the attack occurred on Shabbat and concluding this Shabbat, in synagogues around the country, worshipers will sing the timeless words from the book of Proverbs, It's Chaim la Lamachazikimba. Kimba. It is a tree of life for those who hold fast to it. As we mark three years since this heinous attack, we resolve to remember the lives lost and commit to protecting a future worthy of their memories. And next from JTA, Ted Cruz defends using a Nazi salute to protest COVID-19 public health measures by Ron Campeas. Senator Ted Cruz said in a Senate hearing with the U.S. Attorney General that protesters and civilians angry with local public policies have the right to make Nazi salutes and protest. My God, a parent did a Nazi salute at a school board because he thought the policies were oppressive. Cruz shouted at Attorney General Merrick Garland, who was fielding a range of questions from Senators Wednesday. Republican senators focused on a recent memo stating that the Justice Department would investigate harassment, intimidation, and threats of violence aimed at school boards. Cruz's comments were meant to show that the department's involvement in monitoring school board meetings is not warranted. Is doing a Nazi salute at an elected official? Is that protected by the First Amendment? Cruz asked Garland, who is Jewish. Yes, it is, Garland responded. Multiple incidents of Nazi salutes at school board meetings have taken place in recent months as school boards have emerged as battleground over COVID-19 prevention measures and as Holocaust analogies have, been taken, have taken hold among critics of such measures in the United States and abroad. A salute at a school board meeting in Fox Chapel, Pennsylvania, a suburb of Pittsburgh, made national news when it took place in August. Cruz was referencing a different August incident when police removed a man from a school board meeting in Birmingham, Michigan for using a Nazi salute and shouting Heil Hitler to protest a student mask mandate. That incident was listed among others in a letter from the National School Board Association that identified such incidents as domestic terrorism. The association later apologized for using the term, which some Republican lawmakers have cited as evidence that the Justice Department's scrutiny of violence at school board meetings is just an effort to silence parent criticism of COVID-19 rules. Garland's memo did not use the term or list any specific incidents. A number of liberals and Democrats in Congress criticized Cruz, arguing that he was defending Nazis and pointing out that the exchange occurred on the third anniversary of the Tree of Life massacre, the most lethal attack on Jews in US history. Ted Cruz just casually defending Nazis in a congressional hearing, tweeted Representative Ilhan Omar, who has been plagued by separate accusations of anti-Semitism. Cruz replied, I was defending the right of citizens to denounce authoritarian policies. In other words, to oppose Nazis or petty tyrants not to support them. In a separate tweet aimed at a liberal journalist, Cruz said the parent was doing the Nazi salute because he was calling the authoritarian school board Nazis evil bad and abusive. A number of Jewish organizational leaders and scholars of the Holocaust have objected to Nazi metaphors to describe current political tensions saying it diminishes the Holocaust. Nazi salutes may be protected by freedom of speech but that doesn't mean they're not offensive symbols of hate. The American Jewish Committee said in a tweet in response to Cruz to defend them at any time, much less on the anniversary of the Tree of Life synagogue shooting, is deeply insensitive and inappropriate. Several Republican officials, including U.S. Reps Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert, have compared authorities who pushed for COVID-19 vaccination to Nazis in recent months. And next from JTA, as pandemic drove Judaism online, Chabad bet on more than $137 million in real estate by Asaf Shalev. Facing declining membership, a mainline Protestant congregation in Chicago's Lakeview neighborhood listed its historic church complex for sale in the summer of last year. Church leaders were told it would take at least a year to complete the deal, but within days, an attractive offer came in. A few months later, the building's $2.85 million sale closed. The buyers were a pair of Chabad emissaries who had been serving Jews in the north side neighborhood from their rented apartment since 2015. By converting the church complex, the Hasidic couple, Rabbi David Kotlarski Kotar- and his wife, Devorah Leia, could now realize their dream of expanding Chabad's footprint and establishing a synagogue and preschool. According to Chabad.org, The key to making the purchase was a $2 million donation from Chicago tax attorney Jacques Aaron Price, who heads the Philip Leonian and Edith Rosenbaum Leonian Charitable Trust. Price was quoted as praising Chabad's authenticity and welcoming attitude. The real estate transaction in Lakeview, a hub of Jewish life in Chicago, where large reform, conservative, and orthodox synagogues have long operated from stately buildings, represents just one of dozens of investments by Chabad in new buildings or in renovating and expanding existing properties. In some regards, Chabad seems like an anomaly in the Jewish world. Many non-Orthodox Jewish institutions are unsure about what the future holds for their physical spaces after a year and a half of largely digital engagement and after decades of declining synagogue membership for Judaism's largest American denominations. Chabad, meanwhile, whose strictly Orthodox emissaries seek followers from across the range of Jewish beliefs and practices, appears to be confident about its ability to attract large numbers of people to its centers. The movement has embarked on at least $137 million in real estate projects since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, according to numbers compiled by Chabad.org and reviewed by JTA. In Greenwich, Connecticut, the local Chavad paid $20 million to take over the site of a Jewish day school that closed last year. In Durham, North Carolina, a $3 million renovation of a historic inn, supported in part by Sarah Bloom Raskin, the Duke University law professor who is married to U.S. Representative Jamie Raskin, was dedicated last week. And the Chabad at the University of Illinois is spending more than $7 million to own and renovate a massive massive Tudor-style fraternity house. Because the thousands of Chabad emissaries around the world fundraise independently, Chabad's news and public relations arm had to collect the data by gathering media reports and by carrying out an informal survey, according to Rabbi Moti Seligson, a Chabad spokesperson. The survey turned up a number of capital projects that have not yet been publicly announced, including some purchases that are underway now. Seligson said the true extent of Chabad's recent real estate expansion is likely much larger than the $137 million figure. But he said he wanted to release the information he had in conjunction with the 38th Annual International Conference of Chabad-Lubavitch Emissaries, which takes place this week in person in and around Brooklyn, New York, as well as virtually. We are doing and we were doing an exploration of Chabad's impact and growth to examine the effectiveness of various programs through this difficult time of the pandemic, he said. These numbers came into sharp focus as we looked at the level of engagement and our institutional and infrastructure growth. Seligson also pointed out that during the pandemic, Chabad minted 250 new emissary couples who went out to serve existing Chabad centers or establish new ones. Even before the pandemic growth spurt, Chabad had already engaged some 37% of American Jewish adults in activities, according to recent survey data from the Pew Research Center. Over the past 20 years, the number of Chabad synagogues in the United States has nearly tripled, reaching 1,036 in 2020, according to a tally by Joel Kotkin, a Chapman University professor who studies demographic trends, and independent researcher Edward Hyman. Over the same period, the overall number of synagogues declined by 29%. While their secular counterparts are shrinking, the Hasidim and other more traditionally observant Jewish communities in America are experiencing a surge of growth, Kotkin and Hyman wrote in a Tablet magazine article analyzing their data. While many Hasidic groups are growing primarily through procreation, Chabad, focused as it is on outreach, appears to be picking up a significant chunk of the Jews who have disaffiliated from the reform or conservative movements or who have never had much of an institutional affiliation to begin with. In its recent survey, Pew estimated that among Chabad participants, 24% are orthodox while 26% are reform, 27% are conservative, and 16% don't identify with any particular branch of Judaism. In the present, the core social needs of the Jewish world are filled by two kinds of organizations. One is Chabad, which is expanding rapidly and offers a full gamut of services, as Kotkin and Hyman Road. The other kind of organization is the local Jewish federation and its affiliated Jewish community centers. As Chabad proliferates, it is finding among the Jews it serves many willing donors. Sometimes individual contributors, like the Prices in Chicago, play an outsized role, but their gift was accompanied by a half million dollars in small donations, according to Chabad.org. In comments to Chabad.org, the prices explained why they gave to Chabad. They focus on each mitzvah without criticizing. They're so welcoming, said Jacques Price, who was raised reform. It's not a diluted Judaism, said Evelyn, his wife. Much of the funding for these campaigns is raised locally from people whose lives are personally enriched by Chabad and their community, Seligson said. They represent people from large donors to large numbers of small donors, like college students, who are committed to supporting Jewish life and programs then inspire them with whatever they can based on their means. And next from JTA, the season of the Jewish, meet the occultists who blend witchcraft and Jewish folklore by Rachel Roman. Occult practices and totems are a mainstay of Halloween and sage bundles, altars, and crystals are an increasingly trendy way to dabble in divination and witchcraft. But the spooky supernatural world also has a long history in Judaism, and modern Jewishes are encouraging the connection, though their practices often slightly different, uh, differ from their non-Jewish contemporary. I do not burn sage, said Zoe Jacobi, who runs witches, a popular blog and podcast that deep dives into ancient Jewish myths and folkloric practices. The sage-related ritual of smudging, an indigenous ceremony popular among modern witches for cleansing a person or a, pl- a place of negative energy, is not a Jewish practice, she said, but Jews had crystals. Actually, they were called gems. Jacoby and her peers are revitalizing ancient Jewish practices of witchcraft, which have been seeing something of a revival as of late. Far from having an uneasy relationship with magic practitioners, Judaism, or at least Kabbalistic strands of it, has long embraced them. Jacoby, based in Los Angeles, studies those gems' role in Jewish ritual, along with the connections between assorted other magical artifacts and Judaica eight shelves in her home are filled with books on Judaism as well as Jewish magic, witchcraft, and folklore. Her studies have revealed the historical ways that items like gems have been used in Jewish magical correspondences. Like healing crystals, gems are meant to protect and heal based on their properties according to Midrash, Numbers Rabbah 2:7. For example, sapphire was thought to strengthen eyesight. It's in a medieval text called the Sefer HaGematria Tukt, Jacobi said, but even if we go to the Torah, we see crystals on the breastplates of the Kohanim, the high priests of Israel. Many Jewish rituals today have their roots in warding off demons, ghosts, and other mythological creatures. When we break glass at a wedding, scholars say, we're not just remembering the destruction of the temple, we're also scaring off evil spirits that may want to hurt the bride and groom. Likewise, ancient Jews believed that the mezuzah protected them from messengers of evil, a function parallel to that of an amulet or good luck charm. The mezuzah is absolutely an amulet, said Rebecca Erev, a Jewish feminist artist, activist, and Kohenet, Jewish uh, Hebrew priestex, a gender-neutral term for priest or priestess, who uses the pronouns they, them, and teaches online courses on Jewish magic. I consider it to be a reminder of the presence of spirit, of goddess, of Shekhinah, the dwelling or settling of the divine presence of God. Much of magic is about reminding ourselves that we're all connected and that everything is alive and animate. The moniker Jewish itself can be seen as controversial within the group. Erev first heard the term while attending a 2014 Jewish collective retreat in the Bay Area. I feel that any word that identifies someone as a witch is controversial in nature because of how society, including Jewish society, has demonized witches leading to violence and ostracizing, Erev said. To be a Jew and to be a witch has had serious repercussions through time. I hope the recent popularity of the term Jewish will bring more acceptance and understanding of both identities and help to make our practices more widely accessible. I feel that any word that identifies someone as a witch is controversial in nature because of how society, including society, has, Jewish society, has demonized witches, leading to violence and ostracizing. Cooper Kaminsky, a Denver-based intuitive artist and healer, concurred that the portmanteau was revisionist to some, but added, many, including myself, were empowered by identifying as a Jew witch. Historically, as Jewish practices grew more patriarchal, women were exempt from studying the Talmud and Torah, they knew little Hebrew, so they created their own prayers in Yiddish, used herbal remedies, and centered their religious practices around the earth. Erev mirrors these customs by creating magical rituals like meditating on cinnamon sticks during the month of Shavuot, hearkening back to how cinnamon trees in Jerusalem scented the land during the harvest. There's a Kabbalistic idea of making oneself smaller for creation to emerge. Connecting with a cinnamon stick is a simple ritual. The cinnamon folds in and the bark contracts in on itself. Arif said, sometimes contracting inward can give us space to emerge and create. They also do spell work creating spells for new love, pregnancy protection, and social justice on their blog. They shared an incantation designed to bring more awareness to indigenous land back movements. The goal of many Jewish educators and practitioners, they say, is to shine a light on rituals that have been forgotten or buried for self-preservation. Jacoby believes that many folkloric practices died out following the 13th to 18th century because at the time Jews were viewed as demonic witches. Jewish communities did what they thought would protect them from literal certain death. Some of that came at the expense of some of these practices, Jacoby said. Instead of the supernatural reasons, they tried to give rational reasons for what they were doing. Ashkenazi Jews routinely tried to debate with their oppressors in the hopes that they could outlogic logic anti-Semitism. This traumatic history, the Jewishes say, is often papered over or dismissed as myths and superstitious. Saying superstition is a way that we downplay our magic, Kaminsky said. We protect ourselves because historically a huge part of our oppression has been because we're magical. Kaminsky, who uses the pronouns they, them, does spiritual readings for clients that draw upon Kabbalah, Tarot, and the Akashic records, a reference library of everything that has ever happened which spiritual mediums believe resides in another dimension. Kaminsky incorporates Jewish prayer into the spell work, like reciting the Psalms of David when doing candle spells, and the Beshem Hashem as a magical invocation. Kaminsky, who uses the pronouns they, them, grew up in a conservative Jewish household and learned the basic concepts of Kabbalah in Jewish day school. Kabbalah looks at Judaism through a cosmic, mystical lens that clicked for me a lot more than looking at a story from the Torah, Kaminsky said. As I read more Kabbalah, I started feeling more connected to my Judaism. Various scholars and rabbis have linked Kabbalah to Tarot, a deck of cards originally used in the mid-15th century to play games that evolved to divinatory practices in the 18th century, though Jacobi, for one refutes this idea, claiming that the connection has never been proven. The Tarot's major arcana, the trump cards of the deck which detail the evolution of one's soul usually make up 22 cards in any given pack, a meaningful Jewish number, the same as the number of letters in the the Aleph bet and the number of pathways on the Kabbalistic Tree of Life. For their energy work, Kaminsky draws parallels between the chakras, energy points in the body, discussed in Hinduism, and the Kabbalistic Tree of Life. The Tree of Life is an energy network, they said. There's the meridians of energies, and the chakras are like the middle pillar. Mystical practices were a part of Jacoby's upbringing. Her parents practiced Kabbalah, metaphysics, folklore, and folk mythology. They have attended the same local Chabad since Jacoby was three years old. Thanks to these experiences, Jacoby is comfortable living out of the broom closet, a tongue-in-cheek term that some modern witches use to refer to openly practicing witchcraft. She grew up with astrology, used tarot cards on Shabbat and played with her mother's rose quartz crystal ball while her father led Havdalah prayers. The Jewish's blog and podcast were filled with mythological creatures with origins in Jewish beliefs like dibbcks, werewolves, dragons, and vampires. Some creatures are unique to Jewish lore. The vampiric aluka, a blood-sucking witch referred to in Proverbs 30, turned out to be Lilith's daughter, while a Broxa originated as a bird from medieval Portugal that drank goat's milk and sometimes human blood during the night. Whenever there have been dire times throughout history, people have turned to mysticism. That's how Kabbalah emerged, Erev said. We need to look at our, to our ancestors for guidance. There are a lot of tools in our human community for healing and redreaming and creating a world that is safe and generative for all things. Kaminsky thinks magic has the power to repair the world. Almost all of our Jewish spells are for the sake of healing. Tikkun Olam, using our magic to repair the world, is beautiful. As an editor of the Jewish Observer myself, I think that article kind of leaves a little too many holes out there when it comes to Judaism's belief about witches, witchcraft, and magic. Uh, So we're going to turn now to an article published at My Jewish Learning, which is under the same umbrella that JTA is. They're all operated by an organization called Seventy Faces Media. And this article is about witches and witchcraft. Throughout much of Jewish history, witchcraft has been viewed as a vice that virtually every woman will indulge in. And this essay is by Rabbi Jeffrey Dennis. In most cultures across the world, a witch or wizard is generally regarded to be a nefarious practitioner of magic. In Jewish culture, in contrast to both modern culture, which has reversed most images of evil creatures – vampires are now romantic figures, for example, instead of bloodlusting killers – and Christian culture, which sees them as virtually demonic, the Jewish attitude toward witches has varied considerably over time and over geography. The German Pietists, for example, did regard them as quasi-demons. In the 17th century, Manasseh ben Israel of Holland expressed a view of witchcraft virtually indistinguishable from contemporary Christian demonologists. In Nishmat Chaim 232, the Talmudic rabbis, on the other hand, while not approving of witches, blithely assume most of their own wives engage in at least some witchcraft practices. These differences may well reflect the attitudes of the surrounding cultures in which Jews lived. Mediterranean societies were generally more tolerant of witches than northern European societies. The formal biblical attitude toward wizards, wizards and witches is severe, witchcraft being a capital offense. This seems to spring from its association with idolatry. Both men and women are portrayed as engaging in witchcraft and contrary to the modern distinction made in academic circles between socially empowered sorcerers and socially marginal witches, witches in the Bible are often shown in positions of power, notably the wizards in the employ of the kings of Babylon and Egypt, and the witches in the employ of King Manasseh. Queen Jezebel herself is a witch. Little is known about biblical witchcraft, There is an oblique reference to voodoo-like practices in Ezekiel, but the Bible most universally opts to remain silent on the particular practices of the witch. The woman of Endor, often identified as a witch in Jewish post-biblical literature, is not designated so in the Bible itself, so it is not clear whether necromancy was considered a discipline of witchcraft or a wholly separate offense. Jewish sources offer several accounts of the origins of witchcraft. According to 1 Enoch, witchcraft was first taught by the fallen angels to their mortal wives. This presumably explains the special association between women and witchcraft that marks subsequent Jewish literature. In the medieval text, Aleph Bet Ben Sirah, the first woman Lilith, transforms herself into a demon or witch by the power of using the tetragrammaton, the ineffable four-letter name of God in Hebrew. While Jews were generally regarded to be exceptional magicians, and even some rabbis use incantations, potions, and healing rituals, in rabbinic literature witchcraft is most associated with women. Though there is an explicit statement that both men and women can engage in witchcraft, the fact that Exodus 22.17 prohibits Mahashepha, the feminine form of the noun, is taken as a proof text that witchcraft is a particularly feminine activity. And this is despite the existence of magical manuals such as the Sword of Moses, a medieval Hebrew manual of Thurgy, which is clearly written with the assumption that the adept using it will be a man. Perhaps the distinction between learned sorcery, practiced mostly by men, and folk magic, practiced by women, starts to emerge here. Several passages of Talmud make a point of linking witchcraft with women. In one citation, none other than Simon Bar Yochai, a sage who is reported to have once used the evil eye to slay a man, makes this linkage. The practice of witchcraft was considered so pervasive among women that even the children of great sages could be involved. In general, witches in biblical and rabbinic literature are thought to be engaged mostly in malevolent activities from interfering with fertility and healthy births to cursing rivals and killing the unsuspecting. This stands in contrast with beneficent sorcery such as healing rituals and amulet making which Jewish tradition tolerates. While there are examples of recorded witchcraft that serves purely utilitarian purposes, the ability to stir a boiling pot with one's bare hand, for example, in general it is assumed witchcraft is used mostly for nefarious ends. The motivation for such behavior is rarely explicitly stated in the texts, but can be inferred. Witches seem to be a source of the evil eye, indicating they are motivated by envy and jealousy others use their powers for personal benefit witches are sometimes portrayed as having idiosyncratic powers one may be able to materialize bread another drink etc the talmud recounts that rabbi simeon ben shetta defeated a coven of 80 witches first he tricked them into demonstrating their powers then he gained the upper hand by appealing to their lusts he brought 80 men before them each of whom lifted a witch from the ground thereby robbing each of her power, a piquant detail linking ancient witchcraft with earth or perhaps underworld power. Enforcing the biblical penalty, uh, penalty, Ben Shittah eventually had all of them hung. While dramatic in scale, this incident is actually the only such capital punishment of which is mentioned in the entire vast rabbinic corpus, And given its particularly legendary features, many scholars have held the historicity of of the story suspect. Aside from this one story, witches in rabbinic literature are rarely portrayed as demonic creatures, though it is not clear exactly what they are. In a virtually indecipherable tale found in the Jerusalem Talmud, Rabbi Hananiah pulls the head off a witch from flax. In general, though, witchcraft is seen more as a vice than virtually every woman will indulge in. Uh, That every woman virtually will indulge in. With few exceptions, it is regarded rather just as something inappropriate that women do. In medieval Jewish literature of northern Europe, by contrast, the image of the witch as a purely malevolent entity comes to the forefront, perhaps reflecting the greater hostility toward witches found in Christian culture at the time. In Sefer Hasidim. Witches share attributes with werewolves and vampires. They shapeshift, fly, have bloodlust, and can become the undead. Yet, despite this more alarming view of witches, there is no record of any large-scale witch hunts among the Jews of Europe to mirror the witch-hunting mania that sees Gentile society. Perhaps the popular Christian notion of the Jew as a satanic agent made Jewish authorities leery of giving fuel to such talk. With the spectacle of Jews trying other Jews on such charges. Among the Jews of the Ottoman Empire, witches were viewed with more acceptance. Even an established Kabbalist like Chaim Vital would seek the expertise of such wise women. The threat of a witch may be deterred by reciting the following curse from Pesachim 110a in the Talmud. May boiling excrement in a sieve be forced into your mouth, you witches. May your head go bald and carry off your crumbs, your spices be scattered, and the wind carry off the new saffron in your hands, witches. Seven loops of knots tied to the left side of the body are also a good defense against illness caused by witchcraft, according to the Talmud." This essay was reprinted with permission from the Encyclopedia of Jewish Myth, Magic, and mysticism. Next from JTA Mort Saul, Jewish comedian who fused stand up with political satire and inspired the likes of Lenny Bruce, dies at 94 by Shira Hanau. Mort Saul, a Jewish satirist who was credited with making caustic political and social satire popular in stand up comedy, died last Tuesday at 94. Often walking on stage holding just a rolled up newspaper, Saul liked to riff on the headlines of the day in extended improvised monologues. At a time when comedians tended to steer clear of politics, Saul took aim at politicians and was known to end his sets with the line, Are there any groups I haven't offended? Steve Allen, the first host of The Tonight Show, once once introduced Saul as probably the only real, real political philosopher we have in modern society. Though Saul was not religious and did not discuss his Jewishness in routines or often in public, he inspired a wave of fellow Jewish stand-ups. Woody Allen named him as a major influence and commented in interviews how Saul influenced the fellow Jewish pioneer Lenny Bruce, who would take Saul's freeform style and cutting satire to crude new heights. Saul was born in Montreal in 1927 to Jewish parents from New York's Lower East Side and eventually moved to Los Angeles. As a teenager, Saul dropped out of high school there and tried to enroll in the ROTC program by lying about his age, but his mother found him out after two weeks and brought him home. Saul was married three times and had a son Mort Jr. with his second wife. Mort Jr. died of a drug overdose at age 19 in 1996. The elder Saul got his break performing in San Francisco years after graduating from college, performing sets at a club known for attracting an intellectual crowd. His jokes about national politics eventually earned him a following, and he started appearing on late-night shows and performing in clubs across the country. After appearing in several movies in the 1950s and early 60s, his career took a dive after the assassination of President John F. Kennedy in 1963, which Saul came to believe had been orchestrated by the CIA. But he continued to act and perform stand-up into his 90s. In 1982, Saul played the role of Werner Finnick, a German-Jewish satirist, in a five-hour TV special. In 2003, the National Foundation for Jewish Culture honored Saul with the Alan King Award in American Jewish Humor. But Saul explained to Jay, the Jewish News of Northern California, in 2004 that he never emphasized his Jewishness on stage because it wasn't a major part of his upbringing. I never stressed it, he says, because I didn't have those kinds of parents. I grew up in a homogenized neighborhood and was kind of a mail order cardboard Jew. Speaking with the paper not long after the premiere of Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ, Saul opined on the movie and anti-Semitism terrible movie, he said. Two hours of unrelieved sadism. But the Romans are nice. I think everyone's second nature is anti-Semitism, so all the anxiety over the film is justified. And next from JTA, a world-famous rabbi, a popular assistant, and a succession crisis. Inside the Rupture at Park East Synagogue, by Ben Sales, New York. Near the start of his Rosh Hashanah sermon last month, Rabbi or actually in September Rabbi Benjamin Goldschmidt asked congregants a question is there a person in your life that you feel you have done everything you could do to reconcile with yet nothing works the sermon was about the biblical rivalry between the young David and the older Saul but Goldschmidt delivered it after years of simmering tensions with his synagogue senior rabbi the 91 year old Arthur Schneier The two had split over the terms of Goldschmidt's employment, his work with younger members, and even the safety of the apartment the synagogue provided him. Five weeks later, that tension would escalate to a rupture. In mid-October, Goldschmidt, 34, was fired from his job as assistant rabbi of the vaunted Park East Synagogue on Manhattan's Upper East Side after a decade with the congregation and his wife, who is pregnant, pulled their children out of the school affiliated with the synagogue. Goldschmidt's relationship with Park East has been permanently severed, Park East's board president said in a letter to members. The abrupt firing has divided the moneyed Orthodox community. Schneier supporters and Goldschmidt supporters have launched dueling petitions. It has also drawn attention to the unusual leadership structure at Park East in which Schneier who is among the oldest pulpit rabbis in the United States, serves full-time while also drawing a salary from the foundation he runs, all without an apparent succession plan in place. Both Schneier and Goldschmidt declined to speak with JTA. Goldschmidt's supporters say he is a talented rabbi who was popular with younger members and has been mistreated with too little explanation. Schneier's allies, meanwhile, said, uh, say Goldschmidt has sharply misjudged his status in the congregation and had erred by attempting effectively a coup against Schneier, a Holocaust survivor famous for his human rights activism, who has cultivated relationships with some of the world's most powerful people. When he surmised he was not going to be the rabbi or that was not in the cards for him, that he did not have the stature, the education, or the qualifications, he attacked the man who gave him the opportunity in the first place. Hank Scheinkopf, the veteran political strategist, who has stepped in, as Schneier's spokesman said about Goldschmidt, you have an irresponsible, unacceptable, childish response to a set of facts. That response includes potential legal action. Hours after Goldschmidt was fired, his lawyer sent a letter protesting the decision, and threatening to take the synagogue to court. But the more pressing issue for the synagogue may be how it addresses the fact that its world-famous rabbi, while a very spry 91, according to one leader, appears not to have cultivated a successor. Everyone knows that Rabbi Schneier is getting old and has begun to think about the plan for the future, one involved member told JTA, but what that plan might be is unclear. Beyond the fact that the community's 10-year former apprentice will play no role. Everything about Park East Synagogue broadcasts prestige. Its Byzantine architectural facade, complete with a row of arches and a rose window, has earned it landmark status in New York City and a spot on the National Register of Historic Places. Its calendar is punctuated with events featuring important people, such as on consecutive days this this November, the French-Jewish philosopher Bernard-Henri Levy, and the Consul General of Austria. Those familiar with the synagogue say it sees itself as an institution as well as a congregation, if not more of the former. Cultivating important people and being in important places has been a defining theme of Schneier's six-decade and counting career. Park East was located across the street from what was then the Soviet mission in New York in 1965, three years after becoming Park East's rabbi. Schneier printed a full-page ad in the New York Times with the signatures of Senator Robert Kennedy and other leading officials announcing a protest in front of the mission and synagogue on behalf of Soviet Jews. That effort morphed into the Appeal of Conscience Foundation, led by Schneier, which went on to advocate for soviet jews and for peace in other conflict zones following the collapse of the soviet union it was particularly active in efforts to bring peace to the balkans in the 1990s schneier has spoken at a long list of international venues including the un where he was appointed u.s alternate representative in 1988 according to last year's tax documents schneier received $200,000 in compensation from the Foundation, which is run by his daughter who received a similar salary. Another column of the document lists $400,000 in other compensation from the organization and related organizations. Schneier's activism has raised the stature of his synagogue, which became the first in the history of the United States to host a pope, Benedict XVI in 2008. The next year it hosted Eastern Orthodox Patriarch Bartholomew. Along the way, Schneier also founded founded a Jewish day school that shares space with the synagogue and is named after him. A virtual celebration of Schneier's birthday last year, a few months into the pandemic, attracted tributes from a long list of prominent figures, including both living popes, the Patriarch, the United Nations Secretary General, President Donald Trump, future President Joe Biden, Israel's president, Israel's Prime Minister, German Chancellor Angela Merkel, and more. According to a graphic attached to a video of the party, Park East appears to have raised more than $1 million at the event, which doubled as a 130th anniversary party for the synagogue. When Goldschmidt entered Park East as a rabbinic intern a decade ago after studying at well-regarded Haredi Orthodox yeshivas in Israel and Lakewood, New Jersey, he came in with connections of his own. He is the son of Rabbi Pinchas Goldschmidt, who has been the chief rabbi of Moscow for nearly three decades. The elder Goldschmidt, who was born in Switzerland, is also the president of the European Conference of Rabbis and has also been able to manage relationships with powerful people. He is known for being close with Merkel and, despite that, has mostly been able to maintain his position in Vladimir Putin's Russia. By 2012, Benjamin Goldschmidt was Park East's assistant rabbi and focused his work on two overlapping constituencies, young families and Russian-speaking Jews. Until he was fired, he ran the Sunday Shkola, an education program for Russian Jewish children. For a brief period between April and May 2021, he also ran the Next Gen Minion, a prayer service for young professionals that shut down over the summer and then was reopened recently without Goldschmidt as its head he also built a public profile publishing essays in the washington post and israeli publications before arriving at park east he studied at ponevej yeshiva a prominent haredi yeshiva in Bene brak israel and has been a contributor to kikar hashabbat a haredi israel news site in 2014 he married the journalist Abital chizik goldschmidt in a wedding that was featured in the new york times vows column But in the years after the wedding, the relationship between senior and assistant rabbi frayed. Goldschmidt was never given a contract at Park East and was never guaranteed vacation time or severance pay. Matters came to a head in early 2020 surrounding the rented apartment that Park East traditionally provides to the assistant rabbi. By that year, the apartment provided to the Goldschmidt's was in disrepair, including months of infestation. And they asked the synagogue for help finding a new place which was not forthcoming. Scheinkopf responded that in rental units, the tenants are responsible for handling maintenance issues. Pick up the phone, call the super, he said. The synagogue isn't responsible for a rental property, he is. They ended up moving out, bouncing between hotel rooms and crashing with friends and family until friends chipped in to rent them a new unit in the neighborhood. That decision Has ended up being a boon to Goldschmidt and his family as they can remain in their own home even after his termination. Schneier's 90th birthday presentation in June 2020 reflected the strained ties between the rabbis. The 92 minute video produced in honor of Schneier's featured tributes from a string of prominent rabbis around the world including Goldschmidt's father but Goldschmidt himself was not invited to deliver one. He was thanked for his efforts during the pandemic, including conducting funerals alone during peak COVID via a message that appeared on screen well more than an hour in for six seconds. People close to Schneier say that Goldschmidt was never in the running to lead the synagogue after Schneier. They say Goldschmidt doesn't have the leadership and fundraising chops necessary to lead the synagogue. A few people noted to JTA unprompted that Goldschmidt doesn't have a bachelor's degree, which they view as disqualifying. He stayed at the synagogue for a decade, they claim, due to a mix of inertia, goodwill, and the daunting nature of finding a replacement during the pandemic. He has no experience running a large institution. He has no experience raising the needed funds that are required. He does not have an appropriate education. The man does not have a bachelor's degree, Scheinkauf said. Schneier's backers, including Schein are also adamant that the rabbi's son, Rabbi Mark Schneier, is absolutely not being considered for the job. The younger Rabbi Schneier also caters to wealthy Jews. He founded the Hampton Synagogue and has also parlayed his rabbinate into international activism. He's an advisor to the King of Bahrain and works to promote ties between Jews and Muslims. He's also drawn the attention of the New York Post's page 6 for his string of marriages and divorces, in some cases to his congregants. Mark Schneier showed up at Park East for services recently, but Schneier's backers said that was only to support his father. Mark Schneier is not interested in being the rabbi of Park East synagogue, Scheinkopf said. He's quite successful and happy in West Hampton in a congregation that continues to grow. The rumors to that effect are absolutely inaccurate. In fact, despite Schneier's advanced age, it seems like there wasn't a succession plan at all until Goldschmidt was fired. That may have been one of the triggers for the chain of events conducted in large part by an email that led to the firing in the first place. On October 8th, four men led by Brad Coleman and Brian Kaufman sent an email to the entire synagogue membership calling for a change of course at Park East. The email opened with a paragraph praising Schneier and his career, as well as his story, his survival, his commitment, and the spirit that he brings to daily Jewish life. What followed was less complimentary. The writers said that they were concerned about the future of the synagogue and that while Shabbat services used to bring in several hundred worshipers, they now bring in far smaller numbers with fewer younger individuals and families, unless there is a special event. The email announced the formation of a committee to revitalize the synagogue and build a sustainable future. The committee proposed to work with Schneier, Goldschmidt, and the Board of Trustees. Allies of Schneier claim that neither Schneier nor the Board of Trustees knew about this committee. Two days after the email went out, members began to complain one person sent an email to the would-be committee co-chairs accusing them of having misappropriated my confidential information he added i reserve my legal rights to protect the confidentiality of my information and will hold you accountable for any damage that results from its theft coleman and Kaufman have not responded to a request for comment but four days after sending the email they began to do damage control In an email sent to Schneier and the board, they wrote, we want Rabbi Schneier to be Senior Rabbi of Park East Synagogue for Life. Rabbi Schneier has served this community for six decades, and we have no desire or intention of making changes to the rabbinic leadership of the synagogue. The phrase for life was underlined. But, they added, without offering details, that they had heard for many years of the synagogue's financial challenges and quoted an email they had received saying that the community was at risk in the email sent to a board composed largely of older men who are allies of schneier and unelected by the congregation they wrote that they wanted to hear from all members young and old to schneier and his allies these emails constituted an act of brazen insubordination and the board blamed goldschmidt in an email to the synagogue membership sent friday october 22nd Board President Herman Hochberg Hochberg described the Schneier camp's view of events. According to Hochberg, on October 10th, Schneier and Hochberg met with Goldschmidt, who had provided the members' email list. Hochberg claimed that Goldschmidt then refused to apologize for his rogue actions. In fact, he further inflamed the concerns of Rabbi Schneier and myself by additionally stating that he would continue to use and disseminate the list at his discretion. Hochberg also wrote that the people who wrote the October 8th email are neither trustees nor actively involved in the synagogue or the Rabbi Arthur Schneier Park East Day School. Five days later, the Park East board met via video conference and voted unanimously on Schneier's recommendation to fire Goldschmidt. A few days after that, Schneier sent a letter to congregants defending his record and attacking the emails from supporters of Goldschmidt. Surprisingly, no signatory of the letters ever approached me or any of the trustees about the initiatives they had in mind, he wrote regarding the October 8th email. I suspect it is because they have no real ideas beyond what we ourselves are already doing and that there are other motives afoot that I will not dignify in this letter to you, my beloved congregation. But Goldschmidt might fire back. The day Goldschmidt was fired, Daniel Kurtz, a lawyer working in support of Goldschmidt, sent a letter to a member of the Park East Board arguing that, according to state law, only the synagogue members themselves have the authority to fire Goldschmidt. Kurtz wrote that if Goldschmidt is prevented from returning to his job, the synagogue will be met with swift legal action and a wrongful termination suit. Kurtz declined to comment when reached by JTA. But even if Goldschmidt provided the list of emails, he may not have broken the law. Synagogues often share uh, contact information with the members, and New York State's not-for-profit corporation law says that any member of an organization has the right to examine a list or record of members and to make extracts therefrom. And his supporters have since mobilized to defend him. Days after he was fired, a petition went online saying signatories were shocked and disheartened to learn of his firing. As of October 26th, it has more than 400 signatures. A competing petition titled Stand with Rabbi Schneier has 44. If I were bringing young children into the Upper East Side right now, I would have hoped that an individual like Rabbi Goldschmidt would be an assistant rabbi in an institution like Park East, an engaged Park East member in his 40s told JTA. What he's done, his outreach, his individual support, his knowledge of members, his respectfulness and candor, he never complained about anything. Supporters of Schneier paint a different picture. One of a rabbi with limited appeal among young families who was unqualified for the job and nonetheless made an ill-advised grab for it. A common refrain among Schneier's defenders who spoke to JTA is that Goldschmidt's supporters weren't really involved in the congregation though a recent congregational newsletter does congratulate one of them on a happy occasion and notes the family's affiliation. What happened here is an unfortunate case of a junior rabbi attempting effectively a coup to attain the position that he coveted from Rabbi Schneier, said a congregant with knowledge of the situation. Rabbi Goldschmidt was happy having a small loyal cohort of congregants he would schmooze, but when it came to going out and performing the duties alongside Rabbi Schneier, he was really a shrinking violet. According to the, mem- uh, to the member of the synagogue leadership, Goldschmidt in fact assumed a larger set of duties during the pandemic, officiating more while Schneier was limited in his activity due to his age. And Goldschmidt's wife has repeatedly written about his increased responsibilities over the, half, uh, the past year and a half. May 2020, after COVID had raged for weeks through New York City, she wrote that he officiated at a series of funerals, checked up on congregants, and taught Zoom classes. But the member of the synagogue leadership was still blunt when describing Goldschmidt's reaction to being fired. What happened here, I'm not saying he's like Trump, I'm not, but there's a little Trump here where he can't accept being fired because it happened so quickly, he said. I think what's happened here is he needs it to be said that he shouldn't have been fired or to fire him is wrong because he can't accept it. Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I thank you very much for listening.